Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 23. If you'll join me there as we continue our study through 2 Samuel. Possibly this evening we'll finish up the book. We only have two chapters left. We'll depend upon the pace we take that at this evening. If not this week, then next week we'll finish up. But you'll notice that chapter 23 opens uh, by telling us there that these are the last words of David. So uh, probably not a inference to the last words that he ever spoke, but more of a reference to the fact that these were the last inspired words that David recorded. We might say perhaps the the last psalm that David recorded. We know over 70 some psalms we have uh, in the book of Psalms are directly attributed to David. He's going to say as he signs off here in verse 1 regarding himself that he wanted to be known as the sweet psalmist of Israel. And David certainly was used incredibly by the Lord to write inspired poetry and songs, things that were spiritual truths that were set to music, used as a way to express truths about God and David's own experiences with God. We love them, of course, because we can so connect to them when we read through the Psalms. So this is probably a, a reference here as we read the last words of David, probably to uh, sort of indicate this is the last Psalm recorded by David or the last written words that David gave to us in that form of a Psalm. It tells us there in verse 1, Thus says David, the son of Jesse, Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. So David expresses sort of reflection of his life, his own experiences with God, and you notice as he does that, the first thing he remembers, and it's always that famous statement that it's always good to remember where you've come from, and, and David was a man who God did incredible things through his life, the one individual that the Bible tells us that God actually refers to him, and it was God's reference to him, that he was a man after God's own heart. So this very special relationship that David shared with the Lord, he was a lover of the Lord, certainly by all means was not a perfect man, had his fair share of failings and mistakes in his own life, but David was a man who was just passionate for God, he had a tremendous love for the Lord. Much of that is seen, as I said, in his writings that we have in the Psalms and the ways that we see David expressing himself towards the Lord so often. But David realized where he had come from, and, and he refers to himself there in verse 1 as David, the son of Jesse. Now, again, remember at this point, he's the king of Israel. He's holding the highest ranking position in the nation. I mean, this would be like the president of the United States. I mean, this is kind of the idea of the prominence of the position. But when David refers to himself, he refers to himself as the son of Jesse. Now, remember, Jesse was basically just a shepherd. The idea for David to say, David, the son of Jesse, he's referring to the fact of having come from a very common family, a rather obscure family from a, a a, a line and a family of people that was very lowly, if you would. David didn't grow up on the better side of the tracks, the idea is here. He grew up on the other side of the tracks, not the rich and the famous and the prominent. He just came from a simple family of shepherds. He was the youngest of all the sons of eight sons in that family. So David had this very lowly, simple, common beginning, and, and he never forgot that. 
He never forgot the fact that there was nothing special about him, nothing outstanding about him that would cause God's favor to rest upon him. And that's why he says, look, I, I was just a commoner. I had a simple beginning. I was just a simple young man out in the fields taking care of my father's sheep. If you remember, they, he was so simple, his own family overlooked him at one point. You know, remember when he was uh, anointed the king of Israel that day we saw when David experiences the anointing of God, the calling of God upon his life in 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel comes to Jesse's house because he's told that he's to go there and anoint the next king of Israel that God had chosen. Remember, Jesse starts passing all these sons in front of the prophet Samuel and finally he says, are you sure you don't have one more? Oh, yes, that's right. There is the youngest. He's always out running around in the fields. We, we forget he's around half the time. He's just kind of always out running. And so David had this very lowly beginning, but yet he says in verse 1 that he was the man who was raised up on high and the anointed of the God of Jacob. So he understood there was nothing David had did, done in his life that merited him being promoted to this place of leadership. There was nothing he did to raise himself up he didn't assert himself. It wasn't that he had such a great resume or he could present such great skills or expertise or talents or high education. All these things today that we put such a premium on. If you're going to succeed in the world, then you have to have this level of IQ or at least this level of degree or education or this many years of expertise. And you better have lots of pie charts and letters after your name and your resume and all these kind of things that we put such high esteem upon. And yet so often we see God raising up the most lowly people, the least expected to be used by God, the, those who everyone else would overlook. And David says, I was, I was just a, a farm boy. I was the son of Jesse, but yet I was a man that was raised up by the anointing of God, that it was just strictly the Lord, that it was just God's gracious choice to select David and to put his anointing upon David's life and to raise David up. And that's exactly, certainly, how God so often works. And what God wants to do to this day still, there are people that God wants to choose and to use in the same way Paul said when he was writing to the Corinthians that God often uses the foolish things of the world, the weak things of the world, the base, lowly things of the world. And God's choice upon us and God's anointing upon us is the most important thing and the Lord wants to be the one to raise us up and David realized that I didn't raise myself up he said the Lord raised me up and anointed me and notice how David takes this final title to himself again these last words kind of he's almost as he's signing off here and look what he chooses to refer to himself as again he calls himself the sweet psalmist of Israel now that should be insightful because think about it. As I just said, at this point, David is A, the king of Israel. David is got quite a track record of military exploits. He was an incredible military general, very successful under the time of King Saul when he served under him as an armor bearer. And then even afterwards, I mean, David has expanded the kingdom further than it has ever been before, has had incredible conquests and victory militarily. David was the man, remember, who slayed Goliath. That was quite an incredible defeat in battle. He conquered this giant. But when David refers to himself, he doesn't say what he wants to be known as as David the giant slayer or David the greatest military general to ever live or David the king of Israel. He says, what I care about most and what I want to be known for 
is I was the sweet psalmist of Israel. Because what were the Psalms? The Psalms were David's expressions of devotion and worship towards his God. And David cared more about being a worshiper of God than he did being a workman for God's purposes or a warrior on the battlefield. The thing that marked his life and mattered to him most is I just love the Lord. I'm just a worshiper of the Lord. And I want other people to love the Lord like I do. And I want other people to worship the Lord and to have insights and experiences with the Lord to the same degree that I do in my own personal experiences and in my own passions. And that's why David wrote the things that he wrote so often because he wanted those things to be able to be read and become personally experienced by other people as well. David would write, you know, what is man that you're mindful of him? And, and it would just blow his mind that God would condescend to have such a personal relationship with an individual that just seems so insignificant. And we read all these expressions that David so often had. And it's interesting that the thing he wanted to be known for was that he was a psalmist, that he was someone who expressed worship towards God. And let me just say this. I think that's very beautiful as well because of the fact, remember, in David's experiences, was his victory with Goliath a great thing and stirred faith and, and was a major victory for Israel? Absolutely. Were his military victories a helpful thing to the people of Israel? Absolutely. Was David's incredible rulership as one of the greatest kings of Israel's history very helpful to the people? Yes, it was. But all those things were helpful in that generation. David's psalms, his inspired writings, his expressions that the Spirit of God gave to him that he shared with other people, what he conveyed about the Lord, what he wrote down and recorded and distributed for people to read and be benefited from, things about the Lord, truths and so forth, those things didn't just help one generation, they have been helping multitudes of generations for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and go on and go forth, as long as until the return of the Lord. And, and those things that he wrote and recorded in the Psalms, they have impacted far more reaching in ways than anything he ever did as a king and in his present ministry and service in the days and times in which he was living. And to me, I find that very wonderful and encouraging because of the fact that, think about it, here's David, he's serving as a king, as a military general, and then remember the whole mistake, the whole major moral failure with the sexual immorality in the Bathsheba event. And then what that then precipitated, then that leading into then the, the putting to death of Uriah and the covering of his sin and, and then the, the family dynamics getting all messed up in his household and, and in some ways the sword never departing from David's house and some of the lingering pain and consequences of those negative effects of those bad decisions of, of failure in his life and some of the lingering effects, you could say that after those events, Perhaps in some ways, David was never really the king that he was prior to that time. He still served as a king for many years afterwards and did some good things for the Lord. But in some ways, it's kind of like that, that you know, statement that's been made before that sometimes you know, maybe after failure, a person can fly again, but they may just not fly as high. And, and in some ways, that was kind of David's experience, that as a king... He, God was able to forgive him and to heal him and to, to restore him and to use him again. He continued to be used by the Lord, but in some ways as a king, his effectiveness perhaps wasn't as to the degree of height and potential it could have been. However, David became a much better psalmist 
after his failure. And because of his failures and the depths of those experiences that he then shared and he had with God, hey, who doesn't like Psalm 51? Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in, my, in thy sight. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Hey, David never would have known anything about what that meant or expressed that if he didn't fail to the degree that he failed. But it was out of that failure and the experiences in a personal way with God of his grace and his love and his forgiveness that David started articulating spiritual truths because of the intimacy he developed with God as the result of failure. So I say that to say this. Sometimes we may look at failure and yes, it has its painful experiences and its consequences and the problems it brings into our life. But listen, God is a master of taking a mess and being able to take that and pour out his grace upon it. If a heart is humble and submitted to him and truly repentant and there's confession and genuine repentance, which is what David did, which made him different than Saul and his failures is David sinned before his God but he also confessed and repented before his God very sincerely. And God used him in some ways, you might say, to a greater degree after his failure. Because all the beautiful, wonderful Psalms we have, much of the richness of those is because David experienced personal things with God as the result of even some of his own failure. So how beautiful that David ends referring to himself. He says, this is what I'm going to be known as the sweet psalmist of Israel. He says, verse 2, and the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. So notice, as the sweet psalmist of Israel, David recognized that the things that he was speaking, the words he articulated, the things that he wrote down in these you know, poetic stanzas that then were set to music, so many of them, David didn't want to take any credit of those things to himself. He says very clearly, as he just called himself the sweet psalmist of Israel, not wanting to take any glory for those beautiful things that were expressed by him. He says this only happened, this helpful communication, he says to people, is because the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and because his word was just on my tongue. In other words, David's making a reference there to how the spirit of the Lord was directing what he said, that his speech was being guided by the Holy Spirit, that he was speaking under the influence of the Spirit, the same way all the writers of Scripture recorded the things that they did, Paul's letters and the gospel accounts. Uh, this is how it happened, even as First Peter, Second uh, Peter 1 refers to how men spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the literal language there, when Peter refers to that, it speaks of, of how the wind fills the sails of a ship and it moves the ship in the direction that the wind pushes it to go. That, that, that when men recorded scripture, when they spoke the things that became what we have now as the revelation of the written word of God, that this is what was happening, that the spirit of the Lord was filling the sails of these men who were writing scripture and, and without taking away their personality or their individuality, that God using them as his instrument 
was by his spirit directing them to say the things he wanted to say, to communicate the things he wanted them to communicate about, to record those things that they would be written down. And this is the same idea here. The spirit of the Lord, he says, was speaking by me and his word was on my tongue. He realized he was being used as an instrument, as a vessel to communicate for the Lord. The way I always think of that is, uh, you know, we have these uh, things today, you know, cell phones. Well, if, if I call someone and say I call one of my daughters on the other side of the country to speak to them, the cell phone's not making up the words. I'm the one speaking on this end, but this phone is a device. It's an instrument to be able to somehow as a device, if you would, to transmit my words so they can hear them. And so this instrument is used as, as a, a tool to be able to somehow transmit what I'm saying in such a way that they can hear my words. But it's not the phone's words. It's not the instrument's words. They're my words being conveyed through the instrument. And this is the same idea of what David's saying here. As a man, he said, yes, I was the one speaking, but he says it was the spirit of the Lord who just spoke by me. He was just using me as his telephone as his instrument to convey what he wanted said and to speak those things that he wanted communicated. And what a wonderful thing to know that God uses people in that way, to know that we can seek to be vessels of the Lord, to say like Isaiah, here am I, Lord, send me. And to say, Lord, you know, I know whenever I teach the word of God or speak to someone, often I ask that, Lord, put your word upon my tongue. Lord, I don't want to say what, what my ideas are. I, I believe, Lord, that you're a God who hasn't changed. So if the spirit of the Lord spoke by David, then I believe the spirit of the Lord can speak by you and I. And he can give you a word in season for someone or use you to communicate the gospel to someone or to articulate maybe a spiritual encouragement or a prophetic word or to teach a Bible study and the Spirit of the Lord can guide your speech and give you God's words as well. He says, verse 3, The God of Israel said, and the rock of Israel spoke to me. So how did David speak for the Lord? Well, there's how it happened. Verse 3, first of all, he heard from the Lord. God spoke to him, and then he spoke to people what God spoke to him. So he just said his word was on my tongue. The way that happened is he says that God spoke to me. So God speaks to us, and then we articulate and pass on what God once said if we're listening to the Lord. It's interesting, verse 3 there, the, he calls God the rock of Israel. One of the metaphors used for God in the Bible. It's always a beautiful picture to envision God as a rock. It speaks of stability, of strength, of something that's stable, that God is the, the, the stability and the strength in our lives. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 10, remember that that rock that was moving around in the wilderness to some degree, it seemed, from which water came forth for Israel, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that that rock was Christ. Uh, so when we read of the rock of Israel, in some ways, we think of Jesus, who Paul says that rock represented even in the Old Testament experiences, that, that God spoke to him and that Jesus speaks to you and I today as well. And here's what God said to him regarding leadership and rulership as David was a king. Verse three, the rock of Israel spoke to me, and this is what he said to David. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. So 
What God conveyed to David and David now communicates are things that matter to God regarding leadership or rulership. He says there, he who rules over men. So whether that's politically, and that's what David was at this time, technically he was a political leader, he was a king, but he also was a shepherd king. So in some ways he was a spiritual leader as well. So in any capacity, whether a political leader or a spiritual leader, someone who in any way has authority or rules over other people in a governmental or leadership way, this is what matters to God. God said to David, and he passes it on to us, he who rules over men, first of all, must be just. That matters to God. That, that we would rule and that we would lead and exercise direction over people in a way that we are just or righteous in our dealings. Would to God that that could be influenced today very strongly in the political realm, that there would be just righteous rulership. And again, the idea of being just or righteous means, in a sense, doing that which is right in the sight of the Lord and that which is right towards mankind. That's the idea of righteous. It's right in the sight of God. It's pleasing to God. It's in line with his word and will. And it is what is right for people. And again, I think the best way this so often happens is that when rulership is taking place, that a ruler or a leader is not exercising partiality towards someone or there's no uh, out of balance sympathy, whether it's giving favoritism to someone for some reason because there's some benefit or kickback to them. Or whether it's perhaps in a way maybe where they're showing undue sympathy because it can go both ways where somebody's showing too much pity and sympathy upon a person rather than doing what is righteous and just and not becoming overly sympathetic and in a sense not holding somebody to a standard just because we feel bad for them and not making them hold a equal standard as everyone else does bearing their load taking responsibility for their own actions and things of that nature. And this is the idea. Again, I think that when someone rules in a just way, what that boils down to is when we're faced with a situation that, that we don't allow how we feel about that situation to dictate what we do or don't do. Or we don't allow just the opinions of people or the world or pressures, but instead that we do what is just and righteous by saying, what does the word of God say in relation to this? In this situation and the decision I have to make and how to handle the situation to provide proper guidance or direction, what does the word of God say? What would be righteous and just? And that's how we make our decision. And that's how we handle the matter. That the emotions that are felt, and I'm not discounting emotions, or the thoughts and ideas of our mind or our own logical thinking or our personal persuasions, that that's able to be set aside because we say, I must do what is just and righteous. I'm a leader. What I decide affects others that has influence on my family or people that I'm connected to in some way. So he says he must be just and a ruler also ought to rule certainly, he says, in the fear of God. And that simply indicates as well that you recognize that you're not the final authority. That you recognize that ultimately any ruler, any leader is going to have to answer to God who's the ultimate authority and that there should be this genuine reverence and respect out of the fear of God for God's disapproval 
And that's why we do what's just and righteous because we realize I don't want God to disapprove and not be pleased with how I just handled that situation. That there's a healthy fear of God. And I'll tell you, if there's a healthy fear of God in a person's heart, especially if there's a healthy fear of God in a leader's heart, a politician, a spiritual leader, a boss, a leader in a family, if there's a healthy fear of God in their life, things are going to go rather well. Decisions are going to be made that are going to err typically on the side of being more just and righteous because there's that sense of I'm accountable to God ultimately here. And so I'm not going to do something to be self-serving, but what would be pleasing to God? In verse 4, he describes how when someone does rule in a way that's just and they rule in the fear of God, he equates them to being like the light of the morning when the sun rises and like the tender grass springing up out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. The implication there is that when there's a good or godly leader exercising their leadership properly, ruling over men, that the effect will be like sunlight uh, or, or like the blossoming forth of plant life coming forth. The indication is, again, sunlight provides light and guidance you know, it causes plants to blossom forth. And when somebody is under the direction of a just leader, a good leader who's righteous and rules and directs people in the fear of God, the benefit is it's going to be like sunlight upon their life. It's going to provide guidance. It's going to help their life to blossom. You will blossom. I will blossom under the leadership of a good and godly leader. It will cause those who are being directed to have a life that blossoms forth and experiences God's best. David then says, verse 5, Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and my desire. Will he not make it increase? So David in humility, as he speaks these things that God gave to him about proper leadership, was very, I think, honest in regards to evaluating some of his own choices and decisions and realize that not all of his actions were just. Not all David's decisions as a leader. Sometimes David abused his power a little bit. Sometimes David didn't make a just decision. He crossed the line and made mistakes. And he says, look, whether it was leading the nation or guiding in my own house, David said, I, I fell short sometimes. It wasn't always so with my house. I didn't always do the best, and, and I, I'm honest enough to admit that. He humbly acknowledges that. But notice that David also was able to recognize, though he knew his own failings, he also knew about God's faithfulness, despite his own failings, and the grace of God, because he says, yet, even though I've made some failings, he says, yet, God has made with me, an, notice, an everlasting covenant, a reference to the Davidic covenant that we saw back in second samuel chapter 7 where remember david expressing how he wanted to build god a house and remember that god said to david david listen i really appreciate and it's good that you had it in your heart in fact david I, the reward is yours the very fact that you had it in your heart to do that for me the fact that you desire to do it i've already rewarded you just for the desire alone however in my sovereign decision I've not chosen you to be the one to build the house for me. Your son Solomon, a different man, has been chosen for that job. But he said, David, I need to tell you something. I actually want to do something better than what you're envisioning. You want to build me a house, and that's great. But, but I'm a God that does things 
above and beyond what you could ask or imagine. David, I actually want to build you a house. I want to do something way better than what you're dreaming. I want to build a house for you. And as he began to express this to David, David realized that what was being described is that his family line, the house of David, was going to be the family line, remember, through which the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ, the Savior, would come into the world. And David here, realizing that this covenant from God had been made with him, this everlasting sure covenant, he says, God made with me despite my failings, despite my shortcomings, and, and that I didn't always live perfectly. He said, God graciously made with me an everlasting covenant that is secure and that is my salvation. And ultimately, Jesus would come and provide salvation through David's line. And he says, will he not make it increase or unfold and come to pass? So David here, in a great measure of wisdom shown there, he says, look, I'm imperfect and I failed and I admit it. But he says, man, God's grace is so far above and beyond that. He says, he's made a covenant with me that's not dependent upon my performance. It's all based upon his grace and my believing it and by faith, accepting it for my life. That covenant is sure. And of course, that same, if you would, New Testament covenant to agree, the new covenant Jesus has given us is much the same. The Bible says we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. None of us meet the standards. We know what the word of God says, what God's righteous, just standards are. And we all have our fair share of failings and mistakes. But there's an everlasting covenant of salvation that's available through Jesus Christ that, that is available to us because of God's grace and our simple faith and trust in that. And what a wonderful thing to know that we can accept our failures, but not have to be condemned in guilt and you know, just self-pity and sabotage ourselves, but to know, yes, I'm a failure. But even though I'm a failure, God is incredibly faithful. And he's provided everything for me through Jesus, and that's secure, and I can't mess it up because of my past failures or, or my present shortcomings, that my confidence through faith is in an everlasting covenant that God is the one that's going to bring to pass and keep secure for us. Now, in contrast, verse 6, he says, however, the sons of rebellion, the idea is those who willfully transgress against God, shall all be as thorns thrust away. The opposite, again, thorns have no real beneficial purpose. All thorns do is cause pain for people. And they're problematic. You've got to clear away thorns if you want to have growth and something you know, to be established. He says, because they cannot be taken away with hands, but the man who touches them must be armed with iron and shaft of spear. That is, so you don't end up poking yourself and being inflicted by them. And some of the thorns in Israel there are not like what we would think of little tiny uh, you know, thorns on a rose bush. Some of their plants have some pretty intense thorns. They're more like spikes, if you would, <laughs> coming off of some of their plants. And he says, they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. So David draws a contrast really from sort of the, the, the one who is righteous by their faith in the everlasting covenant of God that's been offered to us in comparison to those who in contrast choose to willfully be sons of rebellion. The word rebellion indicates purposeful transgression. That is, you, you know the line. Rebellion is not, oops, I failed, I made a mistake. We all do that. Rebellion is, I choose to rebel. I know what the rule is, I'm going to break it anyway. I see where the line is, I don't care, I'm going to step over it. That's rebellion. 
And so he refers to those who have a rebellious heart against God. And he's interesting. He equates those who have a rebellious attitude towards God, sons of rebellion. And he says they're like thorns. Their lives become just really kind of worthless because they're wasting their lives. And their lives are nothing really but sources of pain in other people's lives and problematic things that just get in the way from really the good, fruitful things that God wants to bring. And ultimately, the end of their life is utterly burned with fire, the destruction, the judgment of God. Well, verse 8 and through the rest of the chapter here, David basically describes now here some of the men who were referred to in the Bible as David's mighty men, a group of about 30 plus men who seemed to just sort of be unique men who rallied around David. We know hundreds of men rallied around him, but these individuals, because of who they were and their companionship and closeness with David, they became referred to as David's mighty men, these mighty men of God, if you would. And I think as we look at them here together, in some ways it's kind of some... Uh, interesting stories there's little records about their lives little vignettes of things that they did but i think as we look at these things we can draw qualities from their lives what made these men such standouts what made them be called mighty men or mighty men of god and i think if we look at that uh, in some ways that thing which made them the great men that they were we can look at it and draw things for ourselves how do i become a mighty man of god how do i become great uh, in the things of the Lord and serving my king, not David, but serving my king and your king, Jesus. He says, verse 8, these are the names now of the mighty men whom David had. Uh, I'm not going to try that one. The Tachmanite, you can try that one. It's a tongue twister. Chief among the captains. But notice, see, even in that day, they didn't want to use hard names. He was called Adino the Esnite. That's much more easy to say, isn't it? I mean, that's just, he has this really long name, Jehoshaphat. I mean, the time you call that guy in battle, you'd be dead. You'd try and call his name three times and a spear's run through you. So it was much easier just to say, hey, Adino. You know, that sounds almost Italian. Adino, come on. And just, uh, so this guy was a, an important chief, we notice. Notice he was quite the man, Adino the Esnite, because he had killed 800 men at one time. Now, uh, you want to talk about Conan the Barbarian. I mean, this guy was an incredible, obviously an incredible warrior. This record of this man, Adino, who at one point had killed 800 men, is that in reference to one battle? But nonetheless, there's this picture of this impossible task. One man putting to death 800 men here. And what we see about this man, Adino, is he was a man of courage. I mean, he was a man of courage, apparently, who would attempt what was difficult. I would say taking down 800 people is difficult. He would attempt what was difficult, seemingly impossible, probably because he trusted that God's help would be with him as he took on the impossible task. And perhaps in some ways, he was willing to step forward to take on the task that seemed impossible. To step in to try and do something, to accomplish something for God's purposes and in the service of his king. He was willing to say, yeah, I know that seems impossible. But I believe that with God, all things are impossible. And that with God, nothing is impossible. And that where my limitations end, all of God's possibility comes to pass. And he trusted that God would be able to supply what was necessary, and apparently God did. And he did these incredible exploits, 800 men. 
And I think he's a good reminder to us because one of the things that made him a mighty man and can make you and I a, a mighty man or a mighty woman of God is to be someone like him, to be a person of courage. And by that I mean a person of courage who at times perhaps will be willing to attempt something that seems difficult, maybe even impossible. But you believe that by faith, if you have the courage in faith to step into it, though it seems impossible or it looks difficult, that if God is with you, that your limitation is not going to be the thing that holds you back. That your limitations and your human... I mean, can one man on his own naturally kill 800 people? Come on. I don't care how well-trained you are. But to believe, hey, I know that humanly looks impossible. I don't have the skill set or the natural ability where that circumstance seems like it just, it's absolutely, there's no way that could happen. But that you have the courage, not in yourself, but the courage to trust God to do great exploits. And that at times you are perhaps moved in the gift of faith to say, I know it looks impossible, but I believe, like David, who took down the giant, this guy's defying the living God. I believe God wants this guy dealt with and David stepped into it and God supernaturally got behind David's faith and God provided the power and everything that was necessary to deal with an impossible situation. So God help us to have courage to attempt the impossible believing that God will give us what we need. Verse 9 says, And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dado. It's probably that. I don't think he called this guy Dodo, even though some people pronounce it that way. I think Dado's a little safer. Eliezer, the son of Dado, the Ohoahite, one of the three mighty men. He seemed to be sort of the chief three, a higher ranking among that 30 plus men. One of those three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And notice on that day, it says the men of Israel had retreated. But he arose and he didn't just arose to defend. Look what it says, verse 10. He arose and attacked the Philistines. He went on the offensive, this guy. He attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to plunder. That is, the people came behind him only afterwards, after, after the Lord brought this great victory through this one man, the people just came behind him and just picked up all the rewards and the spoil from his labors. They didn't fight for any of it. He did all the work and all the labor and the Lord brought a great victory and they came behind him and just took all the benefits of what he had accomplished. And again, you notice that statement there, and the Lord brought about a great Victory. We're going to read that again in verse 12. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Again, showing us the Lord's the one bringing these victories, but he's working through the things that these people are doing. It was their human involvement. It was their cooperation with God, what they brought to the table. And the Lord brought the victory. He brought the success because he honored what they were doing. And again, the first man we saw, Adino, was a man of courage to attempt impossible things. I think when you look at verse 9 and 10 here, we see another thing about these mighty men. And I think this man, certainly uh, Eliezer, is someone you could say who was a man of commitment. A man of commitment. Because you notice it says when these things were happening that day, they defied the Philistines in verse 9. It says the men of Israel did what? They retreated. That is, the men of Israel that day, for whatever reason, they began to retreat. They began to back off. To retreat means to give up. It means to quit. 
It means to not follow through. It means something in the battle persuades you to say, it's just not worth it. Or I just don't have the energy to do it or the courage or the strength or I'm too tired or I'm afraid. Or, but just, and so you retreat, you back off, you quit, you give up, you go home. You don't follow through and finish. But it says on the day when everyone else was retreating, this guy didn't just stand his ground. Again, notice verse 10. What did he do? He went forward. <laughs> he didn't just say, well, if everybody else is retreating, I'll hold the line. I'll def-. He actually said, well, if everyone else is retreating, I guess it's just... Me and David and God, and he, he rose and he ran forward. He went on the offensive. And he actually stepped forward and he attacked the Philistines. And you want to talk about commitment when everyone else, if you would, was retreating and quitting. He remained, what? Devoted to his king. He remained devoted. And I look at his life and I think, boy, what a great, great example that is. Because if he would do that for a human king, He did that for King David. How much more should you and I be willing to do that in the battles and things that are right and righteous that we find ourselves experiencing in this life for the greater king, the son of David, Jesus Christ? We're serving the king of kings and his purposes. And we're fighting the good fight of faith and the things of the kingdom of God. And yes, there are battles. And listen, there are going to be times when you're going to want to retreat. There are going to be times when other people choose to retreat and say, that's just too hard or it's too tiring. It just, it requires too much sacrifice. I mean, to, I mean, just, it's just too much. I just can't do it anymore. I mean, it's just too exhausting. It's too much commitment. It's too much. And, and people begin to retreat. Christians are the masters of starting things and never finishing them. And I hate to say that, but I'm just going to be very candid. And what I read in the Bible is that we have a savior that poured out his life Unto death and said, it is finished. Th- that he suffered and sacrificed. He literally was willing to serve to the point of death until it killed him. Literally. To be faithful to the plans and the purposes of God, to the things of God, to the things that benefited you and I spiritually. And I think as we seek to emulate our Savior and as we serve the greatest king like this man, listen, there are going to be times when other people retreat. Don't you retreat? Just because other people give up or back off doesn't mean you have to quit or back off. You can continue to, to stay faithful and be committed. Maybe, may, maybe there's, you know, and perhaps something very important that God would honor your commitment. Maybe you're the only one that stays committed, but maybe God would honor that you're the only one who will keep showing up and stay committed when everybody else retreats and that you don't grow weary in well-doing, but that you believe in due season there'll be a reward and a benefit by staying committed. And this guy didn't just not only not retreat, he actually took enthusiasm and rushed forward with his hand on the sword and the Lord brought about a great victory and honored his commitment. And notice his commitment wasn't just to his king. His commitment also was to the weapon in his hand because he used that sword so much. It literally says at the end of the battle, his hand was stuck to the sword. That is his hand just became so cramped around the sword from swinging and using the sword so much at the end of the battle. And this apparently, from what I've heard and and seen research-wise, is a literal thing that can happen in hand-to-hand combat when you use a weapon long enough that your hand can actually spasm around it to where you either have to soak it in water or someone has to pry your hand back off your weapon. 
because you've used it so faithfully and consistently. And of course, as we look at this, as the Lord brings great victory in battle by him swinging the sword, we can't help but to not think of how the Bible speaks in a spiritual way that this book, the Word of God, Hebrews 4 says that the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Ephesians 6 says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And that as we use God's word, may we use it so faithfully, so diligently that it literally becomes a part of our life, stuck to us, that we can't do anything without it and that we wouldn't try and take on anything without using the word of God as our effective weapon in what we work through. And that's how God honors us in battle and brings great victories. The third man we read about in verse 11 was a man named Shammah, the son of Agi, the Harite, and the Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground, I love this story here, full of lentils. Last I checked, they were beans. A bean field. So the people fled from the Philistines. Again, notice the, the people became fearful. They became discouraged. They became defeated. Again, they're running. But he, verse 12, this guy, again, shows you again why he was one of the mighty men, a standout for God and David. He stationed himself in the middle of the field and defended it. And killed the Philistines, so the Lord, again honored this, and brought about a great victory. Notice this man here, Shammah, I think you could say, was to me, he's what you might say a man of principle, a man of conviction. And I say that he's a man of principle and conviction because he shows that he has principle and conviction in all things. I mean, think about this. Everyone else turned tail and started to run because maybe they, look at verse 11, were rationalizing in their mind, this is just a bean field. It's some lentils. It's not like there's gold in the field here. It's not like we're defending an oil field in the Middle East. I mean, it was a field full of lentils, full of beans. And they're thinking, who cares about some beans? I'm not going to die over a field of beans. And so for whatever reason, maybe they rationalize, this is not worth it, it's just some beans. But this man was such a man of principle, he said, but these are God's beans. This is God's field. It doesn't matter if it's gold or oil or it's just some lentil beans. It belongs to the Lord. So nothing's insignificant that belongs to the Lord. And this land is the Lord. This is not the Philistines. This belongs to the Lord. So therefore, it's worthy to be taken care of, to be defended, to be stood up for, to remain faithful. And again, I think this is beautiful because I said this shows that he was a man of principle because to him it wasn't the value of the field. It was a principle thing. In his heart it was like, no, this is a matter of principle. It doesn't matter. When somebody has a, a heart of conviction and they're a person of principle, they don't value things on, well, what's really significant and what's insignificant. And if something's really significant, well then, yes, I mean, you've got to put your full effort and time and energy and you put your best into it because that's significant. But if it's just something insignificant, I mean, just, I don't know, it's like they asked me to teach the class of little beans. They didn't ask me to teach in the pulpit when Tony was gone. They just, they gave me the bean class. Little beans. I mean, there is little beans. Well, not to God, they're not. To God, everything matters. And if you're a person of principle, it's a principle issue. And your heart becomes, look, it's not a matter of what people would put. It's a matter of principle. Everything deserves our best. 
and everything is for God and everything is to be done for God's purposes. And look, and God honored that. I, I just This story is so interesting to me that this guy defends this field of beans and he makes it in the Bible. I can't wait to meet this guy. You're the bean guy. Yes, I saved the lentil field. I mean, and God blessed it and I made it in the Bible. Did you? You know what I mean? I mean, this is amazing. The things that, again, that God takes note of and God blessed him because of his conviction and principle and what he did. Verse 13, then three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. Remember, that was David's hometown where David grew up. And David that day, being just outside of Bethlehem, why it's now occupied by the Philistines, the enemy, he happens to seem just kind of express, kind of spontaneously. It says, David said with longing, oh, that someone would give me a drink from the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So again, David here, just reflecting, he had grown up in Bethlehem. He had no doubt drank from that well, the just probably really clear, you know, crystal clear, clean, cool, refreshing water. And he had remembered many times being hot and thirsty out in the fields and drinking from that well. And now it's occupied by enemy territory. And he just happens to express as he's there in a cave at this time, this is during the time when they were in the cave of Adullam. He just says, oh man, man, it would, you know, it would be so awesome right now just to have a drink. I'm so thirsty in this arid climate to have a drink Oh, from that well of Bethlehem. I remember that was so good. And he just kind of expresses this longing. And it says, verse 16, so three mighty men, again, unnamed. They don't even get recognition of their names. Look what they do. They broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but he poured it out, notice, to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. So these men, notice, again, what made them part of the mighty men is they were men who were, you could say, aware of their king's longings. And they were dedicated and determined to fulfill the longing of their king. They were aware of his longings and then they were dedicated and determined to fulfill his longings and meet his desires. David doesn't command them. David doesn't say here, listen, as your general, I command you to go down to the well of Bethlehem, to travel 12 miles, break through enemy lines and get me a drink of water because I'm out of water bottles here. He doesn't do any of that. There's no commanding here. There's no giving of an order. He just spontaneously expresses a desire and a longing, probably not even really thinking other people are going to overhear or take any. He's just part of communication. He just expressed. And these men hear this and say, hey, he would love to have a drink of water from that well. He's our king. And so they risk their lives. David says, this is, he says, verse 17 there, far be it for me to do this. This is not the blood of these men who went in jeopardy of their lives. They traveled 12 miles. They break through enemy lines just to get him a cup of water from the well that he wants to drink from. And they bring it back. David is so shocked by this. He's so overwhelmed in gratitude. He says, far be it, verse 16, for me to, to drink this. And he would not drink it. And he pours it out to the Lord. He's not wasting it. 
I said, what? Are you kidding me? We just missed our necks. We dumped it in the dirt. They're, they're not offended by this. Don't get the wrong idea. It says he poured it out to the Lord. The idea is what he's doing is he's saying, the only person who's worthy of that kind of sacrifice is the Lord. And he pours it out as an offering, that is an offering to the Lord, and he won't partake of it because he's just so honored by what they did. But again, I look at this story, and again, can we translate ourselves into the story? I like this. They, they, they're aware of the desire of their king, and they're determined to fulfill it. I think that we should seek to have an ear to get to overhear at times and maybe discern what's the desire of our king. What's the heart of our Lord? You know, I love Isaiah chapter 6. I think it's a fitting picture of this because it says there's conversation going on among the Trinity. God is saying, whom shall we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah chimes in and says, here am I, send me. And I picture here that there's this conversation going on among the Trinity, probably the Father and the Son. Whom shall we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah, so in tune with the Lord, so in a sense attentive to the heart of God, he overhears the longing, the desire of God, and he realizes God wants to send someone to do this, and he raises his hand and says, I'll go. I want to fulfill your longing. If that's your desire, if it's your desire, you're my king, the king of kings, I want to fulfill your desire as my king. And I want to encourage you to, to seek to ask God to give you an ear to hear, to be, seek to be a sensitive person to the things of the Spirit. Because I truly believe that many a times we are led by sensing and discerning and having an awareness. I believe it's on the Lord's heart to do this. Maybe it's just to go talk to somebody. Maybe it's to go step out in some way or, or do something. And you just sense that it's something that's a desire of the Lord. It's a longing in his heart. And you can say, you know what? I'm willing to take that on. I'm willing to step into that and to do that. And, and that's something, again, that honored David as a king, certainly honors our king. Well, a few more verses. The rest of the chapter is really just a list of names. He says, verse 18, Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of another three, and he lifted his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name among these three. And was he not the most honored of the three? Therefore, he became their captain as, as a result of what he did. However, he did not attain to the first three. And then Benaniah, verse 20, was of the son of Jehoiada. Again, these are men that we've read about before, Abishai, Benaniah. They were men we've been reading throughout Second Samuel about. He was a son of a valiant man from Kabziel who had done many deeds and he killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. So men who were ferocious like lions, he had put them to death. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. Now that's talking about overcoming odds there. I don't want to be in a pit with a lion any day, let alone on a snowy day. <laughs> so this guy just, again, quite a warrior, quite a courageous hero-like man, he went down, took on the lion in a pit, contained area, on a snowy day, and God wants us to know that. Talk about courage. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man, the Bible says, and the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. And these things Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, did, and won a name among the mighty men. And he was more honored than the thirty, but did not attain to the first three. And as we read about 
uh, Abishai as well, Benaniah, verse 23, says David appointed him over his guard. So again, notice uh, these two individuals, Abishai, Benaniah, we've read about them before. Some of the references here to some of their military exploits. But what I want you to notice here is that before these men became leaders, they were servants. They were fighting lions in pits and lion-like men and conquering people and fighting in battles. These were men who just served faithfully before they ruled as leaders. Yes, they were appointed ultimately to places of leadership, but how did they obtain those places of leadership? Because first it was perceived that they were faithful and they proved their willingness to serve and to work and to, to sacrifice and fight on a personal level as loyal servants and soldiers. And their king saw that, that they were soldiers and servants. And that was what David saw and said, hey, those kind of people who are soldiers and servants, they need to be leaders because they need to inspire others to do those same things. Well, the rest of the chapter is a list of names and you can practice your Bible articulation or if you struggle sleeping, read that tonight. Let's stand together.